0: The America's Quarterly podcast is sponsored by the Boeing Company, which this year celebrates 90 years of operations in Brazil. During that time, Boeing has witnessed firsthand the country's ability to reimagine aviation. That'll be key in years to come, as Brazil plays an important role helping the aviation sector around the world to achieve decarbonization. Welcome to the America's Quarterly podcast. I'm Brian Winter. In today's episode, we'll explore what's next for Chile and its president, Gabriel Boric, after voters rejected a text for a new constitution. Is a better, more equitable country still within reach? Political
1: parties are messy, etc. but still we come together for these important moments and the institutions are still there. So I would say that we have a lot of challenges ahead, but we are starting again with a good standing, I would say.
0: The dust is beginning to settle in Chile after a whopping 62% of the population voted to reject a proposed new constitution that would have been one of the world's most progressive charters. So it's back to square one now for writing a new constitution, and to some extent for Gabriel Boric, the 36-year-old president who took office to stratospheric hopes back in March. It seems like it was two years ago. So much has happened since then. And now finds his popularity in the low 30s protests again flaring on Santiago's streets, and his plans for a progressive shift in serious doubt. This week, Boric's government and the opposition reached an initial agreement on how to start a new constitution-writing process, and Boric has also made big changes in his cabinet. So we thought now would be a good time to take stock and ask several questions, including what is a new proposed constitution likely to look like? How, if at all, can Boric recover momentum? And what's going to happen to Chile's troubled economy amid all of this uncertainty? To discuss these questions, we've invited Isabel Anina, Dean of the Law School at Adolfo Ibanez University and a regular on the AQ Podcast. Isabel, thanks for coming back to the AQ Podcast.
1: Thank you, Brian. It's great to be here.
0: Isabel, before we look ahead, I do want to look back for just a moment and analyze what was behind the plebiscite result. There were a lot of surprises, including the proportion, the percentage of the people who rejected it, and the fact that reject one in almost all of the country. What have been your main takeaways from these results?
1: There's two important results. One is, as you mentioned, the gap, right? Rejection won by almost 62%. And rejection also won, as you mentioned, everywhere. So it won in every single region. It won in the north, it won in the south, it won in rich areas, but it also won in the poorer municipalities. Also, very interestingly, I would say rejection won municipalities that have a high rate of indigenous peoples, And also in municipalities, for example, that are the center of the water crisis. This was a proposal that included a plurinational state, a very water-centric proposal, and then it was rejected by the people that live there. And the other surprising result was the level of participation. We went back for this election to mandatory voting. Everyone voted older people, younger people, rural areas, urban areas. And so what are some of the takes that you get from these results, right? I would say that one very importantly thing, it's the median voter. With voluntary voting, and the government comes from a coalition which was set upon and won under voluntary voting, you have to speak to your sympathizers. You have to rally those who are behind you. With compulsory voting or mandatory voting, you have to speak much more to everyone. And I think that is a key element of what we're looking at. So the idea that sort of the voter is, I wouldn't say conservative in terms of non-progressive, but I would say conservative in terms of gradualism, I think is sort of emerging as something to look at.
0: This really gets to the heart of kind of the bigger question here, which is, How did this country, which exploded in demands for social rights in late 2019, and then at the end of 2021, elected a young, exciting, progressive former student leader, land on this result?
1: I would say that people are much more complex than we try to look at them. The Constitution was put forward as an issue-based text. So we aggregated a lot of issues. But people are complex people. And you vote not only on a single issue, but you vote on a lot of issues. A good example of this is the places that have the water crisis. They said, yes, I'm worried about the water, but I'm also worried about animals. And I'm also worried about my pension and about my job. And so the idea is that one single issue could drive people, move them for the approval, I would say, failed. And that talks to the idea of what type of representation we're having. So with the outburst, with the social outburst, we saw a lot of demands for social rights. But I wouldn't say that those demands were the main issue in the convention. And so it went much beyond what you saw as the main demands from the social outburst. And the second idea is that the voters today are much less loyal. So President Boric won. But the question is, if those votes remain with him. Or many of those voters were votes against Jose Antonio Cast, the other candidate, which was a right-wing candidate. Are voters voting for a coalition or are they voting against something? And those votes, as we have seen in the polls, were quickly lost. President Boric lost his approval very quickly when his government started. And I would say again, that goes to the issue of what is the appropriate way of representing in today's democracy. The rejection is explained also because of the convention itself. So there were a lot of mini scandals during the convention. And I would say that the convention sort of isolated itself from the rest of the country. I mean, we had a presidential election. We had a ballotage. A new government took go office. And the convention sort of speeded through this like nothing was happening in the rest of the country.
0: Well, that seems like a good transition to the next series of questions, which has to do with where we go from here. When I was there in May in Chile, I found general belief that the 1980 constitution would still be replaced even if Rechazo won. As we record this, information is coming in about the new process and what it will look like. So, Isabel, I mean, what do we know? And what don't we know about how this constitutional process is likely to advance now?
1: Okay, so we're in the midst of some negotiations. The first preliminary news is that all the political forces, or at least the main political forces, are committed to a new process. So Chile will embark in a new process to get a new constitution. And that is very important. What will come ahead, and this is important to say, this is being negotiated in Congress. So the government is sort of taking a step back and Congress is leading this. What we know so far is that it will probably be a fully elected convention, a smaller one. We are saying around 100 members. So before we used to have 155, a shorter one. So the last one was a year. Now it's supposed to last around six months and with gender parity. So we already had that. And probably with a body of experts that will sort of be an accompanying body to the fully elected convention. There are still many pending questions that we will see over the next couple of days. One is the electoral system. And I would say this is the key. Many of the blames that we have been reading about the convention is that it enabled too many independent candidates to be elected. And that created a lot of fragmentation and a lot of uh, these single-issue movements to being represented.
0: And just to interrupt, a lot of the representatives of the assembly that were considered just kind of out there and a little bit crazy by Chilean society were these independents. So the theory is that by potentially removing them from the process and going back to the party system, you end up with a group of people that is more mainstream, Correct.
1: On one side, yes. And on the other side is independence generate a cost in terms of negotiating broader scheme of proposals, right? You you have to negotiate with each one or each specific group. With having a more relevant space for political parties, you can negotiate with a broader group and then the negotiations are much easier. So that will be the key question. And the other one is, there are some voices with the idea of including reserved seats for the indigenous peoples. On the last convention, we had 17 seats. The new proposals are much more on the way of including some seats, but proportional to the number of people who vote for them. So you wouldn't have a set number of seats. And then the third question, just for those who are following Chile, is... Will there be sort of a pre-agreement on some of the main issues to be discussed? And so some of the parties, mainly the right-wing parties, are proposing that there's like some of a set of limits or the main topics to go into and not leave it as broad, as we call it, a blank slate as it was previously.
0: Well, and that goes to the heart of my main question, because I think that there is a view right now, at least outside Chile, that from a moderate or center-ish perspective, that this is great that you're going to come out of this with a new charter that will still be somewhat progressive, but less so than the previous version. That will enjoy a democratic legitimacy that the 1980 Constitution, written under the Pinochet dictatorship, did not, and that the rules are starting to come together in a way where the group of people who actually conform the assembly is more moderate. But I question this Goldilocks scenario in part because of the margin of victory for reject on September 4th. It seems to me like with a 55% margin, maybe, you know, you could have seen more negotiation, but doesn't a 62% margin plus the massive participation give the right in particular license to be obstructionist and stand in the way of a document that might actually grant some of the quote-unquote social rights that people were protesting for back in 2019?
1: I would say that the right is committed to a new process, but you see a very different disposition in the other reforms that the government wants to put forward. And so I would say that a negotiation handle will be used, for example, for the tax reform. The current government has a very important tax reform. It must do a pension system reform and also one in health. And so I would say that probably we will see a shift in how those reforms are put forward in Congress.
0: So maybe the right says, "Okay, we'll play ball on the new constitution, but the left is not going to get what they want in these areas that you just mentioned.
1: From what I gather, I would say that we will probably see that approach. The other one is still up for grabs in terms of maybe you can get a much more right winning convention or maybe a much more center left convention.
0: Well, I want to get to that, but let me ask you just one more question about the Constitution. The main provisions in the charter that was rejected included changes to the Senate, a provision for plurinationalism, meaning setting up different legal systems for different groups of people within Chile's borders, as well as some language around property rights and natural resources that scared parts of the business sector. And look, I know we have so much ground to cover between now and when a new charter starts to take shape. But for investors and other interested observers in Chile right now, what is your best guess as to how a new constitution will look? Will it still be considered progressive?
1: This is the $100,000 question, actually. I would say that today we will come out with uh, social rights, definitely. I think that there's a great agreement beyond right or left. There's an agreement on social rights, on stronger social rights. I think we'll come out with a more decentralized country, not in the way that it was framed, but it's also an important challenge for Chile. I think that we will maintain the presidential system, but I think that uh, it will be maintained much more in the current terms than in the terms that was proposed. And I think that the judiciary, which was very much challenged in the last convention, will probably sort of go back to where we are. So I think the main changes that we will see will be seeing them on gender, which I think is great, on social rights, and on decentralization. My bet is that the indigenous peoples will gain recognition, but we won't go into a plurinational state as a proposal.
0: Well, time will tell. So let's turn to Gabriel Boric. He recently, since the plebiscite, he has changed the leadership of six ministries. What's the effect of this? I mean, does he still have any chance to save his government in a way that allows them to pass their agenda? Or is he effectively a lame duck just six months into his four year term?
1: Well, the second scenario would be the worst scenario for Chile. Having a lame duck government when you have a presidential system, and there's three and a half years to go, it's too much to handle. I would say that we probably will see a government that sort of limits the scope of its main agenda, and also probably center a lot of more in its administration in terms of things that don't have to go through Congress, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like it or not and maybe not, a bigger part of its agenda has to do with crime. It was not a big part of the agenda when the government started. It's now the main agenda in Chile, that and the economic crisis, of course. So it's becoming increasingly complicated in the south, Araucanía, which is the center of the Mapuche conflict, which has become more violent over the last year. It has to do a lot with violence. We don't have necessarily a big spike in crime, but we do have a spike in the level of violence used in crime. And so I think the government has to change its agenda because of the results, or at least do a partial reform of its agenda because of the results of September 4th, but also because of what's happening in Chile beyond the constitutional discussion.
0: This is another area where I think longtime followers of Chile end up feeling shocked, because Chile always had this perception as not only being an oasis of democratic stability and economic growth, but it was seen as being significantly safer than many of its peers in the region. And I have spoken to investors and others over the last six months about how these numbers of violent crime are going up, and people are just shocked to hear it. I mean, why is this happening? And I guess more to the point, what has Boric been able to do to show or at least try to show that he understands the gravity of the problem?
1: A lot of it might be explained on drugs, narco traffico, which is something that in Chile we sort of one step behind regarding the level of drug trafficking compared to Bolivia, Colombia, Venezuela, etc. And I think that has penetrated a lot, much more than we were supposed or we were seeing. And also the penetration of weapons, which is something that, we, again, we, you saw crimes using knives and now you see weapons. I think the interesting question here is that you have a left coalition or a center left coalition or, or a mix of both, actually. And the interesting question is how does a coalition that comes from that side of the political spectrum deals with violence? We saw that question very deeply in Chilean society in October 2019 with a social outburst. Do we condone violence? Do we punish violence? Do we justify violence? And that has sort of come back, right? Of course, in very different scenarios, right? We're not talking about burning the subway stations or the violence that comes with student protests, but now it's the use of violence in very different settings, in the South, in regular crime, etc., etc., and I think that question for the left is a fundamental question.
0: Well, and Boric, to his credit, has taken some steps that prior to taking office would have been unthinkable, such as sending the military into this proto-separatist region in the South. I mean, is it enough In terms of people's perceptions, or I see him talking about it all the time on television. Has he done enough, or does Chilean society still believe that he doesn't have his head around this problem?
1: Well, it's interesting to see the shift, as you mentioned. The Frente Amplio, the left part of the coalition, said that it wouldn't use the constitutional exception to send the military to the south, and it has done six or seven times, actually, during its government. Uh, And so you see a shift there. I would say the, the question lingers, and it lingers mainly because, as you mentioned, President Boric did a cabinet shift, and it incorporated the center-left much more strongly, particularly with uh, Carolina Toa. She's a woman who was uh, in Parliament several times, who was a major, and she worked with President Lagos, President Bachelet, and now she's very well in uh, the legislative negotiation. But again her main task will be crime and violence. And so maybe this shift into a more weight, and I don't see this as a full shift, but I see as as an opening to the center-left will be important in terms of, okay, maybe there's some new ideas that are being put forward. So you have four years with two constitutional processes, an economic crisis, and a problem with violence. Your agenda will have to shift, even if you
0: don't want it. And of course, there's one obstacle that has to do with his shift towards the center left. And then, OK, so he's bringing in members of the old Concertacion, the leftist coalition that governed Chile for most of the period following the return to democracy in 1990. And that may help. But the other side of that is Boric risks losing people on the far left flank of his coalition specifically the communist party and the street in a country that's had a very violent protest movement over the last 3 years and we've seen nothing comparable to 2019 but some flare-ups with scenes of burning buses and other scenes that are you know very reminiscent of some of that extreme violence that we saw at the end of 2019 some of which of course was also perpetrated by security forces so Does Boric have to be worried now about the leftward flank not only of his political coalition but of Chilean society?
1: So he has put together a very special coalition by Chilean terms. He governs with two coalitions, the center-left coalition and the left coalition. Normally in Chile, governments came to power with one coalition and a lot of problems within that coalition, but one. So he has to administer two of them. But I would say that The good thing is that both ministers who come from the center-left and who are part of the political committee are very well-versed in both worlds, right? So they come from the center-left, but they have a lot of ties to the younger generations and they know Congress very well. Even one of them was received actually with applause when she went to Congress uh, on her first day. Minister Marcel, the Minister of Finance, is also very well First in how Congress works and how negotiation works. And let's put forward also in this conversation that on September 30th, we start with the budget negotiations. Just to add two things. One is that there's a lot of new initiatives regarding renewable energies and climate change, which may pick up the agenda on from another perspective. And I would say that we have big, big challenges in terms of putting forward a pension system reform, which we've been discussing over the last, what, 18 years probably? And now the health system must go through a big reform, in part because of a Supreme Court judgment. And so I think part of managing these two coalitions will be tested on these reforms that we will see.
0: Well, and Isabel, as you mentioned, the economy is a huge question mark. Chile is expected to have one of the worst performing economies among major Latin American countries in 2022. And the outlook is not much better for 2023. When I was there in May, I heard officials say that investment is falling faster than consumption, which makes sense. You have all this uncertainty, all these question marks. Now the process has been extended even further because of the plebiscite result. And maybe it's all for the good. Maybe you end up with a better, more moderate charter at the end of all this. But to get there, it's going to be such an extended period of uncertainty. And when there's uncertainty, businesses and consumers don't tend to invest as much. What are you hearing from business leaders in Chile following the plebiscite result? Are they grabbing their heads and saying, oh my gosh, we have another year or two of uncertainty, or are they more happy with the fact that the previous charter was rejected?
1: The best phrase that I've heard that summarizes the feeling is, okay, we have uncertainty, but we have less uncertainty than we had with a bad document. So maybe we're going forward with a new convention, but the possibility that that convention is much more moderate than the one beforehand is more promising. I would say that today, the main problem with the economy is inflation.
0: Isabel, although the referendum results shocked many observers in Chile and abroad, I still sense some room for optimism from you. Is my interpretation correct? Do you think a better Chile is still within reach?
1: Well, we have to reach it. Maybe the road is much more complicated than we thought so. But uh, I would say, look, we had a referendum which voted the highest level of people that we've seen since the late 80s. And we had the results in two hours. And the level of civility, of respect, of the regards from the institutions was 100%. Nobody doubted the results. The full political spectrum was, well, almost everybody was committed to this. And the electoral institution worked perfectly. And so at the end of the day, we have a lot of problems maybe too many on our agenda. But I would say that that gives me hope in terms of what we're seeing in other countries in Latin America and in the US. Political parties are messy, et but still we come together for these important moments and the institutions are still there. So I would say that we have a lot of challenges ahead, but we are starting again with a good standing, I would say.
0: All right. Well, Isabel, thank you so much for joining us on the Yankee podcast. We'll be rooting for Chile and watching this process in the months ahead.
1: Thank you, Brian, for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly podcast is produced by Luisa Franco and edited in partnership with Human Group Meet.